0: Just real quick here before we get started, in earnest in, in the revelation, I've been thinking has been studying through and preparing on what to do with um, what to do with um, the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. And you know, we're prone to to make kind of grand statements um, like you know the and I'm prone to make them, and um, and I think they have to be understood in the greater context of all the rest of the statements that we make, because you know I'm prone to say stuff like, the cross is the reason for the existence of the entire universe. And that can either be true or false, depending on how you take that statement about what the cross is. And, and so if you mean that, that the cross on which Jesus died was the reason for all of this, and and it alone is the reason for all of this, then I would tell you that that statement is not a correct statement. There's many things that the cross requires to function the way that we understand the cross to function. If Jesus Christ had not been born fully man and fully God, the cross would be useless to us. If He had not lived a perfectly sinless life under the law, the cross would be useless to us. If He had simply died on the cross and not been resurrected again, three days later to make propitiation for our sin, the cross would be useless to us. And so, when you look at any point in the Gospel, that is the case. But if by the cross, what you really mean is the Gospel in its entirety that begins with the foreknowledge of God in eternity past and ends with the glorification of His people at the consummation of the age and everything in between that brought that to be then you can say the cross is the reason for the existence of everything that was created. So I look at the way that the Lord has, has in His ordained wisdom handled and shaped and brought about those events. And you know, what do you do with the genealogy? Like you could stop on every single name that's listed. They all have large stories that all relate back to grace. And we could be in those genealogies for the next two years. I don't think the Lord wants us to do that. So I'm trying to. Be sensitive to the spirit and pick and choose and and wind that path the best that we can, where we get out of it what we need to without, you know, being academic just for the sake of of academics. But I look at what he was doing in Jericho, and I look at what he was doing with calling Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and I look at what he was doing um, with. with, with Ruth and, and, and the Moabites and, and look at what he's going to be doing with David and Bathsheba and all of these very <coughs> complex kind of rich tapestry things. And, um, and I consider that in doing all of that, his point and his purpose was not simply to bring about the situation where... He could be born of the flesh, but all of the things that entailed leading up to that and coming out of it when he was going somewhere, and he wasn't going, the the end goal was not a virgin birth in a manger. The end goal wasn't even the cross and his sacrificial death. The end goal wasn't even the resurrection. The end goal was Revelation 22. This is where it's all heading. That's why they call it the consummation, because it comes to its designed end. This is where you're supposed to arrive. This is why I did all of these things. And, you know, this is why when I needed a nation holy and set apart to testify to who I was and bring me into the world in the flesh, then there wasn't one around that was worthy of the job, so I made one from scratch out of what most people would consider to be the scraps of mankind. and made them holy and set them apart. And it was all because we were coming right here. And so in Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever here we see both the water and the tree of life in the midst of the new Jerusalem Now, if you remember during the millennium the water of life was flowing out of the old Jerusalem as well but during the millennium it was flowing out of the temple from out of The Holy of Holies, the place where the mercy seat would set. And in Ezekiel chapter 47, in verses 1 through 12, we see the record of what it looks like in Jerusalem for a thousand years when it says that when he, that being the angel, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. then he brought me out by way of the north gate and he led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out of the south side. And going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me to the bank of the river and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arba and enters the sea. When the water flows into the seas, the water becomes fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And fishermen will stand beside the sea." He's not talking about the Mediterranean Sea. He's talking about the Dead Sea. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engadi to Engalim. And it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the Great Sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. I don't know what the water of life is, but I'm guessing it's more than two parts oxygen or two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Whatever this stuff is, it is a physical reality, but it is a physical reality that is manifesting a spiritual reality. It makes the most dead body of water in the world spring to life like the Mediterranean Sea. It makes the trees that it touches in NGD bring forth fruit every single month. And that's just during the millennium when you're still dealing with the basic rules of physics as we understand them today. Now fast forward to the new heavens and the new earth. And flowing from a single throne. Because there is no temple in this city. The Lamb is its temple. And so you just have this bare throne. And it's a single throne. And yet, it is the throne of both it is the throne of both God and of the Lamb. For Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The water of life comes directly from the Father and the Lamb who are one because the water of life comes to men only through Jesus Christ. And this is John chapter 1, verse 18 stuff. No one's ever seen God but God who is at His side has made Him known. The water of life comes to men only from Christ. In John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered the woman at the well and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Or again in verse 14, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give Him will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We take that statement as being hyperbola, I think, most of the time. The only problem is is if you compare what Jesus says about the water of life once it's being given to you welling up into an unending spring out of you, and then you look at what is said about the water of life flowing out of The temple during the millennial reign where it starts as a trickle and just expands apparently all on its own to where it's ankle deep and knee deep and waist deep and then it's a roaring turret that you can't even swim through and everything it touches just explodes into not just a life, but kind of the perfection of life that's beyond the natural. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said out of his heart, Will flow waters of living, will flow rivers of living water. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. Whether He's offering it to the woman at the well, whether it's flowing out of His temple in the millennial reign, or whether it is flowing directly from His throne down the center of the street of Jerusalem. And you just get this picture in your head. It only comes from Him. And it waters down both sides of the street. The trees of life. This isn't the first time that we've seen the water, and it's not the first time we saw the tree. The tree of life was in the midst of the Garden of Eden along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is more than happy circumstance. It is divine providence that the Lord ensured that Adam and Eve got to the tree of knowledge of good and evil first. Because if they had got to the tree of life first, this story would be very different than the way that it unfolded. And so, after the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, what many people initially read and see as being a part of the curse is actually not part of the curse. It's part of the grace of God and mercy to those who will be His people. The Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. I don't know what kind of flaming sword, because one thing that's clear in, in the Hebrew is that the cherubim and the flaming sword are two separate entities. This is not a picture of an angel with a flaming sword. This is cherubim, plural, and a flaming sword. And the flaming sword turns every which way of its own accord. And you're not getting past. This isn't curse. This is mercy. Curse would have been to allow them to get to that tree to consume that which would allow them to live forever in some kind of quasi-half-living dead. Talk about zombies. A dead spirit in a decaying body that is locked in time. Will not die or will not pass away. And the Lord said no. It's like like when you bar your 14-year-old from your Corvette. You don't let them have that. They'll kill themselves. He said no. And then He says yes. When things have been brought to their completion and all is right in the creation, when He's done everything that He did and the garden, and in the flood, and with Shem, and with Ham, and with Japheth, and with calling Abraham forth out of the Chaldeans, and and and, and the miraculous birth of Isaac, and, and and taking Jacob who was just a just a scumbag, and and putting in him a new heart, and bringing forth the twelve, and the rise of the nation of. Of Israel and all that he did with grafting in these Gentiles in between, all the way till we get to the the bring forth, the begotting, the incarnation. God come amongst men in the flesh, and all of his ministry and his sinlessness and his sacrifice and his resurrection and the defeating of death. And Satan, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the empowering of the church for the gospel to be spread around the entire planet to shut both the mouths of men and <laughs> angels and all of the ups and downs and the evil that is being ordained to work for good and all of the complexities of his very grace to this day when he splits the eastern sky and returns and proves himself and vindicates his choice in Israel for a thousand years for men to see destroys Satan and The Antichrist and the false prophet, and opens the books and judges men and angel, and it's all been said exactly the way he wants, and he says, Okay, now you can have it. Because now, and only now, will it be for your good and not for your harm. And so not only can you have it, it's Main Street, baby. The water will flow directly from the throne and the trees of life on both sides, yielding different kinds of fruits every single month, and this is for the healing, it says, of the nations. Now remember, at this point in time, there are no there are no natural men left. The millennium is over, the white throne has come all whose name were not found written in the book of life have been cast into the lake of fire. What you have left is the saints from every tribe and language and nation. And so here they all are. Blood-born sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Gentile mutts of every kind of flavor that you can pick, all now Hebrew. Crossed over ones in the fullness of the glorification of the Father and the Son. And these things exist because God has always used means to bring about his end. He always does it. And the crazy thing is, the best I can tell for, well, I know for a fact that he's not required to use means to bring about his ends. But he always does. And if I can just offer a little bit of opinion here, I think it's because he fancies it. Such is the nature of engineers. They like their stuff. Engineers like to engineer things. And men like to engineer. And men like to build. And men like to small c create. Because it is the thumbprint. It is the image of God in us his nature he digs it and so he could have made him alive in any way he wanted but this was the way that he thought to be the most glorious and most beautiful way to do it and so here's what it looks like the great white throne and water of life flowing from it nourishing the trees of life that yield a different fruit every single month and the leaves of these trees are for the healing of His people, of all of these nations and tribes and languages that He has brought to Himself, adopted in Jesus Christ. The word here for healing is very specific. It's therapia in the Greek. It's where we get our English word, obviously, for therapy or therapeutic. And we just transliterate that one straight out. And it literally means service rendered by one to another. So initially this wasn't a medical term, even though it got used for that a lot. It simply means service that is being rendered from one person to another person. So let me give you just a couple of examples. I'm almost done. A couple of examples of how this is used in the New Testament. Um, In Luke chapter 9, verse 11, it is used for the way that we would most commonly use it in the English for healing. It says this, When the crowds learned it, they followed Him, and He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing, who cured those who needed therapy, where He could do something in service from Him to them. But it's not only used of medical issues. In Luke chapter 12, verse 42, we see another prime example. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Whom his master will put in charge of his servants of his therapia, to give them their rations at the proper time and so here with those two you get kind of this maybe a, a better idea out of the greek than what we would normally you know think about in the english we think of therapeutic in the english and this is almost some kind of you know medical related thing and it certainly can be but it's not necessarily it's also the kind of servants that Comes into the house and makes sure that duties are 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 carried out on time and in a proper fashion. One person doing service to another. So, the water and the leaves of the trees, therefore the the therapia, they are for the thing by which God uses to to serve His adopted children. The leaves of the tree are tied to the provision of the peoples. And what is that provision? Is that provision the, 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 the food rations they need in their time? Is that provision to make sure that, you know, if if they're they're injured that, you know, they get the medical attention they need? I guess that's kind of a fallacy for glorified race. But, you know, what is it? the provision that they need is nothing less than God Himself. And so, the water and the leaves of the trees are there, it says, to do three specific things. That the saints may see the face of God. That God's name will be upon His people's foreheads. And that the saints will reign forever and ever. And He could have done it any way He wanted but he did it this way because he is a designer by nature and apparently he thought this was the finest design I think I must agree